want to say anything now? <laughs> Los, do you have anything to say? Hey, are you going to talk on a podcast? Let's not talk on a podcast. Hey there, everybody. You're listening to The Things That We Tell Each Other. I'm Ben. This is Clydette. Hola. Como estas? <laughs> so this is this wonderful woman's birthday week. And our anniversary. Yes, but I'm focused on you. Oh, that's nice of you. So I wanted to make this episode... Which all, I don't know. Right. All about you. Oh, my gosh. I wanted to kind of ask you some questions just to let our listeners hear about you and how wonderful you are. Just to be fair so that the world knows, well, mm. first thing, I'm holding Loki... Of course. ...in his baby position, so mm-hmm. you're going to hear sounds... I only half ordained this idea. I knew that we were going to do something for my birthday, but I did not expect. <laughs> all right, calm down. I did not expect it to, to be the all Clyde episode. Mm-hmm. Right, you guys are going to hear him a lot because he's not only in my lap, but he's up against my heart, which is where I have my mic. Mm-hmm. All right, relax. There's no reason to talk about it. You're not a featured guest. <laughs> he says, I always am. <laughs> so. Here's the things that I know of who you are right now as my wonderful wife, my best friend, right? I know you as a badass, beautiful, brave, compassionate, empathetic, incredibly smart, fierce, and basically a perfect woman. Oh, my God. Right? Are you drunk? Why does that make you say that? Because I'm far from perfect. Not true. There is perfect, and then there is the place I live. Mm. I will say one thing, though. Since you have notes that you took behind my back, go ahead and hold on to this. It'll save you time. Mm -hmm. You will not have to write my eulogy. (laughs) Stop. Save this for the the, the funeral, because I do... Plus, you and I do need to discuss my playlist for the funeral. I came up with some new songs when I was during a workout yesterday. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, go ahead and tell me, what are the songs? No, I'll tell you later because I have some really cool ideas of, like, you know, songs. Okay. But I don't think we should start off this episode with talking about my funeral <laughs> wishes because I'm, I do have I'm, quite a few. I'm, I'm curious, and I'm sure everybody else is now, like, what's your playlist? <laughs> well, I have my playlist, but I also have, like, we know we're cremating me, mm-hmm. but I also have the things that I want done at the memorial. Like, it's going to be like a dinner party because you know how much I love dinner parties. Right. Yeah. And then it's going to be, there's going to be lots of music. There's going to be club music. Mm-hmm. But there's going to be like, yeah, like some major music. Okay. You need to relax. Why is he want, why as soon as we start recording, he wants the attention, like he's looking up at me to touch him, to because pet him, to kiss him. Because the attention isn't on him right yeah, now. Yeah, because he's not getting enough kisses in this moment. Okay. So I think it's appropriate. I, I kind of felt like Alyssa's go in order. Right? So I wanted to know about your childhood. <laughs> and, I mean, we've discussed this. How long is this podcast? As long as we want it to be. Stop. Stop. So we've we've discussed. Just put him down. He's hot because mm-hmm. he's laying on my lap, so okay. he's panting. So we've discussed on the podcast a little bit of how we've we both had kind of dysfunctional childhoods. Yes. Right? But I wanted to make this about you. 
So your dad was a pastor mm-hmm. and a disabled veteran. Mm-hmm. He got uh, burned in a plane crash on the way to Vietnam. Yes. Right? Um, your mom was a hairdresser. Mm-hmm. And you are the oldest of four girls. Yes. Mm-hmm. Was four girls. Yes. So, I guess this tell us about your childhood a little bit. Well, my... My parents met because my mother, because my mother was my grandmother's hair stylist. Mm-hmm. And my grandmother would often tell Clydette Senior stories about her wonderful, brave son who was on his way to Vietnam. And unfortunately, the pilot was flying with illegal health papers that he had bought. He had basically bought a signature that he was healthy and he was not. Mm-hmm. And he had a heart attack in midair in the plane carrying over 100 soldiers headed for Nam crashed and part of the plane landed in a remote area and part of the plane broke off into the old country western singer actor's uh, property, Gene Autry. If you look him up, he was a famous western character Mm -hmm. he had property and the plane broke off into two parts and part of it landed on his land my dad's body was recovered like many hours after the plane crash and it was still the seat was still simmering and he was burned over 80 percent of his body and he spent five years being rebuilt in a burn unit with only special leave pass passes to go home Mm -hmm. on some weekends once he could stand and walk again but for many months maybe even borderline a year or so he was in a basket where they just carried him around because he was that burnt right but my mom was a hairstylist and my grandmother marge went to my mom and they would often talk about my dad and then finally she introduced the two and the very first day and you picture this because this is you know the 60s the very first day picture two young people both on their kitchen floors with a vintage telephone with the long cord and they sat up against the same wall in each of their kitchens Mm -hmm. and twirling the cord in my mom's hand they spent the entire night on the phone Mm -hmm. when the sun came up they hung up and then uh just shortly after they had their first date and then they were pretty much inseparable i will tell you this when my father told my mom and or my grandma and grandfather that he was going to propose to Clydette. My grandfather, for some reason, was sitting at the table, this you know Italian family, and he spit his wine across the table. And I, I, I don't remember the details of why, but they weren't happy that he was going to propose. I don't think it had a lot to do with my mom. I just, I don't know what the deal was there. Yeah. They were shocked, but they, you know, they were happy that their son had someone because you can imagine the deformities. My dad was a very good-looking man a very good looking GI mm-hmm. and then he was burnt over 80% of his body so there he had a very bad self esteem and his hand was mangled his mm-hmm. ears were burnt off his back was complete looked like like he had been whipped mm-hmm. with some type of device his back was just they, the doctors called him hamburger mm-hmm. that's what he looked like but they fell in love and they married and he eventually got a settlement from the plane crash so they began their marriage quite wealthy and like a lot of young people, they didn't know what they were doing, and they squandered it on mm-hmm. furniture and fancy things to have the the best house ever because they both grew up poor. 
and they threw a lot of parties. Like my mom and dad were, they were actually called, they were nicknamed the Great Gatsby's mm -hmm. because their parties were so amazing. And like you could guarantee that there'd be the finest liquor and giant lobsters and seafoods and steaks and the best appetizers. And my mom did it all herself, but mm -hmm. they threw the biggest parties, but they never invested, they never you know, put the money away so when I came into the picture, because it took, of course, my mother suffered from infertility. It took six years to get me. She ended up in a mental facility for having a breakdown after losing multiple babies. And she was suicidal. And my dad was considering joining the mafia, which no, all, you know, people think I'm joking, but there were mafia ties within distant relatives of my family and mm -hmm. they were enticing him and he was considering it and on one of the final days that he was gonna make a definitive decision if he was gonna go into a life of crime because he wanted to stay rich, they got the call and she was pregnant with me and somehow they did not lose me when they had lost these other pregnancies and because of that they had decided not to go into the mafia. They did begin a wig business which was a lucrative business back then because everybody wore wigs and toupees even if they didn't need them mm -hmm. and the partner they hired embezzled the money and skipped town mm. and my father thought about killing himself and then you know a year and something later my sister comes along and then throughout the four of us being born there were multiple miscarriages between us there probably would have been eight of us if you count the pregnancies that went the farthest mm -hmm. there probably would have been eight of us so, and then when I was around five or six, they decided because of my father's burns, they couldn't handle it anymore. And the doctor said, you have two choices, Arizona or Florida, because of the climate, for, because his skin would shrink in the winter and it would crack and burn and ooze. And it was just very painful, terrible life for him. Mm -hmm. And he chose Florida just based off of Walt Disney because Walt Disney's aunt lived near one of his... Um, Later, we, we find out when we move here, he ends up, we end up living close to one of Walt Disney's aunts. But the, def the major reason for it was he thought, Arizona is a desert, or should I take my kids to where the happiest place on earth is being, has become a big issue. Mm -hmm. And he chose Claremont based off of Orlando. Mm -hmm. They did. And on our way down here, he sold everything. And on our way down here at a truck stop, he meets a young wannabe TV evangelist and he spends the night talking to this guy and this guy, quote, gets him saved. And my father was an atheist for many years because of the plane crash and he had very many anti-government beliefs because of Vietnam. Mm -hmm. I supported and all that when I found out later as to why he was so disgruntled. Mm -hmm. But he was an atheist. I mean, people would try to witness to him. The chaplain would come see him, the army chaplains, and he would say such horrible things he would make people cry because mm -hmm. he was so angry about the crash. But somehow this guy wooed him into becoming a Christian, and off my dad goes and decides of all the denominations, he chooses Baptist, Southern Baptist, when he gets to Florida, mm -hmm. and goes to seminary and becomes a Southern Baptist pastor, and that was really the beginning of the most traumatic... He was always angry and violent, but he really lost his mind when he became a Christian and working for the church, he began to suffer such persecution because he, 
he could be racist. I mean, I grew up with hearing the word, you know, nigger, chink, dago, cunt, bitch. Like, mm-hmm. I grew up hearing horrible terms, mainly nigger. Nigger was used a lot mm-hmm. um, whenever he would want to threaten us with if we didn't do our schoolwork or whatever, that we were going to grow up. And then he would get in the pulpit and he would preach about love everybody as yourself and Jesus never discriminated and um, Jesus was a Jew. And, and then he'd talk on, during the week about the filthy Jews that steal all the money on Wall Street. Right. But he, um, he went through a lot of persecution at the church. And what was funny was even though he was saying racial slurs, he defended a biracial couple. Understand this was the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And the church, Southern Baptist Church in Kissimmee, Florida, did not want to allow a black and white couple. And he basically fought so hard for that. That was pretty much what got him blackballed. And then they just began the process to get him kicked out of the church. Mm-hmm. And I have memories of the board coming to the house and threatening to throw everything we own from this double wide trailer was the parsonage and it was a nice double wide trailer do not get me wrong it was brand new Mm -hmm. it was all wood it looked like a wood cabin it was so beautiful that's what we lived in in the parsonage and I have memories of the board coming in and telling him that they were going to throw everything on the front lawn and kick him out and those are my earliest memories of Christianity of the church and of God God's people where it was nothing but hate and Racism and bigotry, and especially sexism with the Baptists. Like, mm-hmm. if mom didn't appear to just be pregnant and cleaning and making things, you know, making meals for people. And my mom was, you know, I'm a lot like my mom. She was outspoken, she was sarcastic, she was intense, she scared the hell out of people. And that did not go over well within the Southern Baptist world. Right. But the hardest part, I think, was he, he was a very angry person. Mm hmm. He had untreated depression and PTSD. Right. Well, I, and I want I, I wanted to specifically bring up your father and the crash um, because I have always had the sense that his anger shaped your childhood. Yeah, very much. Mm-hmm. I he, he was terrifying. He would threaten to leave us all the time. Um, he would threaten to kill himself all the time. Mm-hmm. He would tell us that if we didn't stop doing whatever child normal behavior we were doing, Mm -hmm. even though we were a lot to handle with four kids back to back, we were only a year and a half. My two final sisters are so close that she was probably practically nursing when she conceived my youngest sister, Lynette. Mm -hmm. But he would threaten all the time about he was going to leave. And the biggest thing was, I hope I wrap myself around a tree and kill myself. Mm. So when he would do that, he would leave and we would spend all night cleaning mm-hmm. a 13-room house. I know it sounds luxurious, but it was a fixer-upper that they bought when we got to Claremont. It was beautiful, mm-hmm. but it was a fixer-upper. It needed a lot of work, and they never did the work. So imagine 13 rooms, four kids, two adults, animals. And, you know, the problem was not all of my family were clean people. Right. And I was obsessed with it, and it was how I managed my anxiety. So I I always came off as the asshole sister, Mm -hmm. uh, always wanting to seemingly control everything because I couldn't stand the filth. And I have memories of standing in the laundry room, and the laundry would be taller than me, and I would just be standing there crying because Mm -hmm. I did not know how I was going to get all that done and get everybody's clothes done. 
and there would be a huge pressure for me because I loved my family. Mm-hmm. I worried about my sisters because they were growing up in that same environment and there were behaviors starting to show up that were a lot like mom and dad and, and in myself as well. It wasn't just what I saw in my sisters, but my idea was try to, like every older sister tries to, is I became, you know, what we call in my field, parentified. Mm-hmm. I was made a parental figure at a young age and I... I could be a real asshole because all I was ever thinking was if I don't get them out of this mindset, we will end up a little bit like them but worse because now they're being influenced by negative peers. They're being influenced by the way society is changing in the 80s and and it was it was it's hard to be the oldest child and it's not that it's easy to be the second, the third or the fourth. But it's hard to be the oldest child because I always knew somehow innately what we were experiencing wasn't right. Mm-hmm. And then when we would visit, you know, Annette, my second sister and I have a best friend and her name is Kristen. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm so sorry. <coughs> I'm so sorry. And we would visit their family and they were a fluent family. Mm-hmm. Her father was a an unbelievable Air Force um he was also a veteran, but he was a he was an engineer, mm-hmm. and they had a beautiful house, and they had you know they had money, and they would talk to Kristen and her sister like human beings. They were calm, and even though there were times that I saw Kristen's father get frustrated, he never yelled, he never cursed, um, and and I w- we would go over there as young children, and we would think something was really wrong with the way we were living and I would go to other friends houses and do like overnights and I would be dumbfounded the little Mm -hmm. bit they let us ever leave because once they became Christians they became extremely unstable mentally Mm -hmm. once they became full on Christians all they did was fixate on the end times and the rapture and that was a big topic in Mm -hmm. the 80s with TV evangelists it was a good way to make money um, with fear and it the mental when i think about the damage that was done to me as a child you would think it would be the yelling the throwing my toys the destroying things the broken glass the torture and the fear wrapped around being threatened with the rapture mm-hmm. every time we just did little kid stuff right and forcing us to watch the movies of people being beheaded and you know not being able to buy food because they've been left behind and they don't have the mark of the beast, forcing us to watch them on a screen where you set up, they had a projector and they'd set up the, and they'd show these movies in our house and invite youth over. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I say all this, but there were moments of love and kindness. My, my mother was intense. She was an artist. She was a great cook. My father was funny. He was so charming. Many people would talk about how lucky we were to have him as a father because he was so charming. Mm-hmm. He was a lot like, you know, he was like Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, um, and Robert De Niro all wrapped into one guy with a horrific anger problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was an Italian. He was, you know, he he yelled and screamed a lot, but, you know, he... I know that they loved us, but they were broken people. Right. My mom was wounded. My dad was wounded. They were broken people. And they were 
undiagnosed back then and they were untreated mm -hmm. and you know I think about like all the horrible things that he said to me but there were times what was so contradicting was he said horrible things and insulted me like you know he he would call me fat mm -hmm. stupid dopey bitch um, no one's ever gonna love you kids you're so dumb but one of the memories that is seared in my brain is we were at my uncle's wedding and my uncle, it would be my dad's brother. My uncle is probably one of the people that I absolutely love the most in the world. Mm -hmm. And I lost my uncle because of family conflict. He's still alive, he and his wife, um, but we had conflicts and we were, I was a different person when I messed up with them. And I lost him, but he was one of my biggest heroes in life. I was at his, and still is, I was at his wedding with his beautiful wife, Sarah Ann, and um, there I am, a fat kid in a homemade dress that mom had spent nights wide awake making our matching dresses. And my third sister, Yvette, was the flower girl, and mom made her a, a like a gown mm -hmm. to walk down the aisle in. And um, I was sitting at a table, and I was watching all the beautiful couples, because this wedding was nice. It was one of the first formal events I attended, and I was watching all the beautiful couples dance, and I thought to myself, I will never dance like this with a beautiful man because I'm a fat kid, I'm going to be a fat teenager, and I'm going to be a fat woman, and no one is ever going to want to be with me. And my dad, somehow sensing that I was in some kind of mental spiral as a young child, came over to the table, and he put his hand out, and he said, excuse me, ma'am, would you like to dance? Mm -hmm. And I said, yes, sir, I would. And he whisked me out to the dance floor, and I didn't know what I was doing. My dad did. And he started twirling me around, and I remember my dress was catching air, and like like all the pretty women, I mm -hmm. was looking all beautiful. I could, I felt beautiful. And he looked right at me, and he said, you're, you're the most beautiful girl on the dance floor. Never forget that, Clydette. Mm. And that stayed with me, I mean, even through all my horrible times of just hating being fat and ugly and as a teenager being in love with you know I was in love with a musician and I was going to marry this guy who was so beautiful and perfect and he still is I'm good friends with him he's still beautiful and perfect <laughs> um, I don't know if his ex-wife would say that but it's true right and um, he um, he changed my life in that moment like he for just a minute I felt beautiful and perfect but I feel bad for them. He's still alive. We don't. I don't really know where he is, or you know, he remarried after my mom died. But mm -hmm. it was a hard childhood, but it also had beautiful memories. I get frustrated sometimes when I talk with my family because the the emphasis, and I'll do it too. I'm guilty too. Mm -hmm. The emphasis will be on all the negatives, but there were good times. Mm -hmm. They wanted us so badly. They wanted children so badly. And they threw everything they had at us when they had it. Mm -hmm. But because they weren't responsible financially, when they became poor with four kids, that was kind of taken out on us too. Mm -hmm. And then my mom had depression. There'd be days you wouldn't see her. Mm -hmm. If she wasn't working, she was sleeping. She had multiple physical things. She would not go to the doctor because she was an overweight woman. Mm -hmm. And she was smoking. They were both chain smokers. They ate horrible. They fed us horrible food. They fed us good food too, but mostly, you know, it was, we were rewarded a lot with candy. And that was a big deal of why three out of the four of us were clinically obese. Right. By the time we were like 10. Hmm. And I see this happen with parents a lot where they, they just keep giving into the food and then right. the kids are obese and it's just, 
it just kills me whenever I see a child because if my parents just would have said, you know, all right, we're not going to reward with candy. We're going to take time out of our schedule to actually talk to these kids instead of just throw food at it. Mm -hmm. A lot of my struggles in life never would have happened. But you can blame your parents for so much, but becoming a therapist taught me at one point you freed yourself and then you needed to make choices. Are you going to heal? Are you going to work on what you what was done to you? Or are you going to keep blaming your parents? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a relationship within my family to this day. I, I don't have a relationship with one of my sisters because not only is she very much um, exhibiting on irrational behaviors due to her belief system that we, the exact belief system that was pushed on us mm-hmm. but um, it's just this focus of hating our parents and how evil and they're responsible for everything and not taking any responsibility for her own life decisions once she became an adult right. did she ever get into therapy? No did she ever get healthy? No did she choose a spouse exactly like my father and worse? Yes mm-hmm. so it's like we have choices We, yeah it was a hard childhood but we were loved mm-hmm. we just they did the best with what they had at the time and so before we move on give me give me a fond memory other than like the one that you shared with your dad just now was beautiful I'd never I'd never heard that story oh I never told you about him no Uncle Dennis's wedding mm a fond memory with him or her or what? Maybe just both as a family. When I was 19 and I I wanted to apply for a job to a place that I had been volunteering for many years to work with the disabled to teach handicapped children and adults how to ride horses. When I went to apply for that job, I thought I will not get this job because technically I was not supposed to be riding horses mm-hmm. because of my weight. So the place that I volunteered at, they also offered trail rides to the public, and there was a weight limit. Mm-hmm. And I knew the entire time volunteering there that I was past the weight limit. And I remember sitting with them and saying, like, I want this job more than anything, because the person that ran the program was my hero, my mentor. She got me out of the house. She got me away from mom and dad. Mm-hmm. When I found this campground and started volunteering, it was the only link to reality I had where I could actually make something of myself and I could be different. I could listen to music that wasn't Amy Grant or Michael W. Smith and I could like explore life. And she leaves the place and and I lose her as a mentor. But then I turn 19 and the job is open. Someone else had taken the job after her, of course. It had been years since I had been there. When I sat down with them and said, I'm going to apply for this job, but I'm really worried because I know that I'm too fat. My dad and mom looked right at me and they said, you need to apply for it. This You've worked at that place since you were a kid. You gave up every Saturday. You gave up. There were multiple opportunities you had to be more social, and you gave it all up for Woodlands, everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You deserve this job. Go for it. And I got it, and they celebrated it, and they helped me. They co-signed a credit card so I could buy furniture because they they provided housing for the job. Mm -hmm. And I moved out at 19 and became what is affectionately known as the horse lady. Mm Mm-hmm of this campground and it was one of the greatest days of my life when I came home and said I got the job and I and I was so happy to get out of that house I loved my parents but I was so happy at 19 to get the hell out of the death doom destruction the constant negativity mm-hmm. the constant you know beating us up with the bible and the rapture and 
but then what do I do? I go right into organized religion. I go work for a place that was even, you know, that was conservative, extremely mm-hmm. conservative Lutheran. Mm-hmm. And that's where I started to hear the messages about I wasn't good enough because I was a woman. So now I leave him with the rapture and this, and now I get another mentor, and all I'm hearing about is, yes, you have gifts, and everyone knew I could preach and teach, mm-hmm. but constantly being told by this mentor, you're a woman, you're nothing, you're a woman, you can't do these jobs, you can you can pick up horse shit, and you can sing in front of the whole church with demo tapes, mm-hmm. but you will never preach, you can't go to seminary, you'll never use the gifts that I want you to use so I don't have to be out here every night teaching devotions to summer campers, mm-hmm. but you'll never preach. Mm-hmm. And I knew then that was my calling, and that was... So there, there's a there's just a theme of men in my life from the very beginning who did whatever they could to put me down and keep me in my place. That mm-hmm. was. It's amazing that I actually that I didn't really grow up hating men because the damage in my life is all done by males. Right. Everything from dad's upbringing to to fast forward to sexual assault. Right. It's all men. Mm-hmm. But. Woodland saved my life. Well, that's that's a really good segue because that's my next segment for you. Mm. So we're going to take a break. Who is our break for? Anchor. There we go. So we're going to drinking my lemon water. I'm trying to <laughs> hydrate because I got I got messed up yesterday. I drank too much alcohol. I had such a good time yesterday. Yeah. Or Friday night. Friday night we had company too. Right. But I'm hot. I'm having to hydrate because Mama party like she was. The 20 year old that wasn't allowed to party <laughs> so on that note go listen to this advertisement about anchor and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about woodlands mm. okay mm-hmm. okay and we're back this has been really good i'm i've <clears throat> wow excuse me i've very much enjoyed listening to you and i am super excited to talk about the next segment of your life, which is woodlands, like you talked about. Um, so, like you said, you were the horse lady. How did it start? My, our friend, Kristen, that I mentioned before, my sister Annette and Kristen, they pretty much discovered Woodlands Lutheran Campground. And this campground in Montbird, Florida, was a retirement campground. So Mm -hmm. the retired people lived on the campground full-time in mobile homes and RVs, but it offered a program. And, you know, please understand this. Back then, we weren't as PC, so the program was called Horses for Handicap. Mm -hmm. We used the word handicap. You can't use that word now? It's not. There are better words. Mm. And what it was was during the fall years... It was horseback riding offered to every type of disability. Children that were in wheelchairs, Mm -hmm. deaf, autistic, blind, Down syndrome, things that that fell under the category of handicap. That ran five days a week, Tuesday Mm -hmm. through Saturday. Mm -hmm. Saturday, we had all day long kids came, all ages, all disabilities. The volunteers that groomed, saddled, and walked alongside of the horses with the riders were all adolescent youth that were volunteering. Mm -hmm. So we found this program and we began volunteering. And for me, it took on, it, it it was serious for me. It was, 
my sister and Kristen loved it. They enjoyed it very much, but I knew it was going to be my life. Mm-hmm. I knew the first time I ever went, I was I wanted to make a career out of it. I felt called to work with the disabled, especially the autistic, because it was the most difficult of the disabilities that we were seeing. So there was a young woman that ran the program, her and her husband. They were young, 20s. Mm-hmm. They grew up going there, too. Mm-hmm. She became my mentor. She was the horse lady. She was the riding instructor. Now, backing another piece to it is in then in the summer, when it's scorchingly hot here, mm-hmm. it shuts down with the handicap piece. Especially in Orlando. Yes, and it goes into what we called able body riding, which I would never call it that now. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So instead of disabled, it was called able body. And it was a summer camp. They had mm-hmm. cabins. They had a pool. They had events. And you came to summer camp for one week, Sunday to Saturday, Ten weeks a year we offered it. Mm-hmm. Campers of all ages from all over the United States. And they rode horses. They got horseback riding lessons. There, and the counselors were college students, a lot of them from seminaries, mm-hmm. um, Lutheran seminaries. And I remember being a young teenager looking up to these counselors because I wasn't really part of the summer camp piece because mm-hmm. when I was a volunteer, it would kind of end for us. And then I was just like, I would still visit Woodlands because I was such good friends with my mentor and they eventually had a baby and I became their nanny that's the big piece is Mm -hmm. I was first ever a nanny when I was still in my teens Mm. because I was homeschooled right I was able to nanny and I was basically living with this couple at this campground and my mom and my mother was so jealous and tortured me because Mm. of Erica um because I was so close with Erica and um then fast forward she leaves and my heart was, I was devastated. I actually thought it, that was the first time I ever thought about killing myself mm. was when Erica left Woodlands and I was losing the bubble that I was living in that got me out of my house, mm-hmm. got me away from my parents. That bubble had burst when mm-hmm. Erica had decided to leave and go back to her family in Georgia. And not only were they leaving and I was losing them, but I was losing their baby who I was basically living with and taking care of as a young teenager and she was my all in all and I applied at 19 and I ended up becoming the horse lady Mm -hmm. when I started out as a young volunteer as a kid and that was amazing it was I lived there I had as I mentioned the little trailer Mm -hmm. and I was get up in the morning feed the horses teach all the lessons I, I learned how to do a budget when I could not I could barely add or subtract because we were homeschooled and my dad did absolutely nothing but yell at us and didn't want to deal with us and it wasn't all his fault which the shame there is that your father had a master's in mathematics mathematician but Mm. it wasn't all his fault the four of us were little assholes we knew that we didn't have to go to school in a regimented schedule and Mm -hmm. we took advantage of that it wasn't just they provided structure, but once we pushed back and said, no, we don't feel like doing school today, we're going swimming, they didn't, they didn't fight it. Right. But his patience for us was very different. Mm-hmm. When he tutored kids in math, he was very calm and patient. When he worked with us, there was the, why are you so fucking stupid? Mm-hmm. This is, you're you're, you're going to be dumb and you're just going to be picking oranges the rest of your life. And then there'd be multiple slurs against Asia, or against you know, Latino people. Um. So yeah, I I was so grateful to get that job because I didn't see college as an option then mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I I couldn't even read or write like the two college level at nineteen. Right. Right. Yeah. 
but those were the greatest days of my and as the horse lady I made friends I was still very much clinically and morbidly obese mm-hmm. and there were a couple people that said you should you shouldn't pick her for the job to the two pastors that were hiring because she's she's fat she mm-hmm. can't ride horses but they chose me because I was a Christian mm. now I wasn't allowed to pastor but they liked that I was a you know a little right. young woman that liked to preach and sing about the Lord mm-hmm. and that's why they chose me should they have hired me being clinically obese as a riding instructor absolutely not but they felt it was more important to have a positive influence for summer camp and mm-hmm. for the, the volunteers during the fall year I've always felt like when I, so we've known each other for did we figure out like 19 years right at least yeah I have always had the sense that this was the time of your life that has probably shaped you the most is that a fair statement when I was the adult at Woodlands yes when I was the adult running Woodlands they were the happiest days of my life. Mm-hmm. I was never more happy than in my tiny, beautiful mobile home. I mean, it was right off. It was so beautiful. Um, I had my own furniture. I, I slept in the middle of a campground and mm-hmm. never once feared for my life. Right. There was no one anywhere near my mobile home. I could mm-hmm. have been murdered you never thought about that stuff back then in the middle of a campground um it was the happiest most secure time of my life Mm -hmm. and that is where i was when my mother unexpectedly dropped dead Mm -hmm. so she gets hired as she and dad get hired as the camp cooks for summer camp and my mom decides on a budget of no money for hundreds of campers, she's going to be making homemade sauce and mm-hmm. homemade desserts. And I mean, she was just a handful. And all the counselors to this day that are grown with their own children, they still remember, you know, Mama Leone. Mm-hmm. That's what she went by, mm-hmm. Mama Leone. And they worked, they would be on their feet sweating in that kitchen. And they would work all day long to produce a homemade dinner instead of something that just came out of a can. Right. And I got to see them because now I'm living there. I'm the horse lady. I get to mm-hmm. see mom and dad all day, but I'm an adult, and I have the boundary of saying when you when they started getting crazy, you get to go home to your house, and I'm going home to my house here at Woodlands. Right. But then I, I turned 21 at Woodlands. Mom buys me my first alcoholic beverage because I was a conservative young Christian, and I didn't... I might have had a sip here or there with my Italian family, but I didn't ever purchase alcohol or smoked weed or did any drugs or had premarital sex because that would shame God and my parents. So my mom buys me my first alcoholic beverage at Red Lobster. I'm 21 years old. And I, I mean, I, it, it knocked me off my feet, even as big as I was. Mm-hmm. And she thought that was hilarious. But I'm 21 years old when I'm sound asleep and the phone right above my bed rings and it's the hospital and it and mom had been hospitalized because she had been having some problems and they said you need to come she's taking a turn and they actually lied to us to me on the phone at Woodlands they lied and they lied to my father at home in Claremont and said she had taken a turn and at that point she was already dead Mm. but back then they had to tell you things like that so that you wouldn't drive there frantically knowing she was already dead right so we arrive and there's the chaplain the church chaplain 
And as soon as I saw him, something just told me she was dead. Mm-hmm. And the doctor looked mortified to see my father, and they told my father, and he was in complete disbelief. And that's the day in my eyes that my father died. So he's still alive, mm-hmm. living somewhere, but that's the day he died. Mm-hmm. Because after that day, he withdrew from all of us. And understand, if I'm 21, my youngest sister is still a teenager. And my three sisters are still young, living mm-hmm. in the home. Mm-hmm. And he became an absolute nightmare after that. Because once mom died, he literally, and this isn't a saying. People say the saying, you lose your mind. Mm-hmm. He literally lost his mind. He became unstable, insane more than he had ever been. And he goes on years after that to talk about how miserable he was with his mom, with my mom, when Mm -hmm. he meets someone else. He talks about, and he would slander mom after she was dead about how she ruined his life, but he literally lost his mind when she died. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Matt Woodlands is the horse lady, and they tell us she's dead, and I get back in my car, and dad is like, you're coming to the house, right? And I'm like, nope. And I went back to Woodlands, and I went out, and you were never supposed to take a horse out by yourself. It's too dangerous. All you had was a walkie-talkie and a helmet. Mm-hmm. And I took out my most favorite horse, and I rode to the top of the highest hill, got off that horse, and just sat on the top of the highest hill. And I remember wanting to blame God, but feeling that I wasn't allowed. Mm. That I wasn't allowed to blame God for mm-hmm. mom dying, that it was his will. Right. And he must have saw a reason and all that bullshit of God needed an angel. Mm-hmm. God needed Mama Leone to cook or whatever. Right. All that bullshit that religion tells you right. instead of just letting you suffer mm-hmm. and understand that grief is a thing and it hurts. Mm-hmm. All the justifying and the bullshit that they're in heaven and God needed them as the, you know, God needs your mom up there. Well, I need my mom here. Mm-hmm. So why don't you fuck yourself? Right. Like, I'm 21 years old. Mm -hmm. I need my mom to see, to meet my future husband. I need my mom to hold my babies when they're born. I need my mom to, you know, move in with me when she can't take care of herself anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't need to hear your bullshit how God needed mom. So I, I will say this. I've heard a lot of stories about your mother. And your mother's work ethic from what you have just told me and what I've always just kind of felt was beyond anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she her, was raised by a woman that would work with her hands arthritic and she would right. work bagging groceries. Your mother's work ethic and your ability to tell me how she was at work, whether she was working for the car dealership or with the um, as a hairdresser, has it shaped me and how I formed my career going into retail. Oh, that's remarkable. Mm-hmm. I never knew that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my mom was a master saleswoman. Mm-hmm. My mother dominated Ford. She worked for Ford for a, a long time as a salesperson. She was the number one sales employee many months in a row, and no woman had ever held that position. Mm-hmm. Um, she started her own business and worked through severe carpal tunnel. Um, she had so many healthy issues from being overweight and being a chain smoker, and she'd stand on her feet 12 to 18, 20, whatever day, hours a day doing hair, mm-hmm. um, all to support us. Right. And when my father um, 
was a pastor and not making any money at it because he never did. Mm-hmm. He never made any money at it. Um, my mother supported us. Mm-hmm. And my mother's mother, my grandmother Anna, she worked through being beaten by husbands. She worked through a time in life where all you ever did as a woman was to work, you know, mm-hmm. the 50s, the four, the 50s and the 60s, the 40s. And my grandmother stood on her feet and bagged groceries when she had nothing, mm-hmm. retired late, and she died. Of, she also died of a heart attack. Mm. And then my mom died of a heart attack, and my aunt ended up passing of cancer, but she had so many heart issues, nobody could believe that she lived as long as she did. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, when that was a big defining moment when mom died because that was my, that was, she was my best friend, but she also wasn't. You know, mm-hmm. I had kind of replaced her with Woodland's, you know, I did. Well, and we've talked about this, too. Your mother, probably, if she were alive, would not have allowed you to move on and do the things that you did later in life. My mother is the reason that I did not go to college at 18. Mm-hmm. I very much knew that I needed to stay home and be part of my mother's life because I was her counselor. I was her therapist. I was her priest. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was a lot of things that I shouldn't have been as a young child. But we were close. We were tight. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something about when you name your child after you, especially females, that wasn't done then. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my sister talks about, she made a really profound point, my, sis, my second sister about, Annette made a point about how naming me after mom set, set a, you know, almost like a precedence that I would need to be her and do her do what she wanted and and I did. Right. And you combine that with the parentification and the religious guilt. Mm-hmm. And I felt like there's no way I could go away to college because as a young child I dreamt of becoming a lawyer. Mm. I I knew that education was going to be a struggle because I had I had such a great deficit being a homeschooler. Mm-hmm. But my main dream was being a lawyer. And my dad would constantly tell me that lawyers are quote satanic they're liars, they're pieces of shit, mm-hmm. and that God had told him that I had, was supposed to go into ministry. So if God tells your father, who is a pastor, that you're supposed to go into ministry, that's what you do. Right. So I begged them to let me consider law school. Many mm-hmm. times I would talk to mom about it all the time, that I was going to be a lawyer, a powerful lawyer. I wanted to do that. I wanted to get out of poverty, too. Mm-hmm. I did never want to fight to where... There were some days that if she didn't get good tips, we, you know, there was stuff she wasn't buying. Right. And then there was, you know, there was excessive use of junk and things like I said. But she, there were times that were so tight mm-hmm. that without the tips, I don't know that we would have made it. But I wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't want to go into ministry. I didn't, I didn't want to just, you know, I want, I had a dream. I was five years old, and I went right from pretending to be a bride like kids do to being a mother. Mm-hmm. The main goal was to be a mother, but I knew if I was a lawyer, I could have a better life for my kids. Mm-hmm. But they squashed that, and you know, sadly, they didn't foster it. They didn't do anything they could to try, especially education-wise. Mm-hmm. So I knew I needed to stick around. So mm-hmm. I didn't leave for college until long after I'm the horse lady. I'm 20-something years old when I'm headed to Bible college, and I yep. get there, and all of my roommates and friends are 18 years old. Mm-hmm. And I'm 20-something. I'm in my early 20s when I go to college. So before we move on to Bible college, tell me about your favorite horse. 
my baby was named Chucker. Now I had two different, understand, I'm at Woodlands at two different time periods. I'm at Woodlands as a child, mm -hmm. and then I'm at Woodlands as an adult. I don't know that I had a favorite horse as a child because I spent too much time working, you know, cleaning, scooping the horse poop, cleaning the saddles, doing whatever Erica needed me to, to do to make mm -hmm. her happy and proud. Um, so I didn't have time to really have a favorite as a kid. And right. I also tried to not, I came up with excuses to not have riding lessons because I was so big as a teenager and nobody else was that fat there. Mm -hmm. But as an adult, there was this... Um, beautiful like quarter horse mix his name was chucker and he they were all donations people need to understand this every horse that came to woodlands was on its way to the slaughter mm. and the main reason was horses contract a disease that's likened unto aids it's called equine infectious anemia it's a path blood pathborne disease that's just like aids and when they get it they're terminal and when a horse gets it they can never be around other horses again. They have to be either destroyed or quarantined. Woodlands welcomed these donations because we had a quarantined campus. Mm -hmm. We also received donations of severe abuse and neglect. So we had a horse named Kelsey that the owners couldn't afford her anymore. So they made a giant noose and they hung her from a tree. They pulled up a a small truck, mm -hmm. put her on the bed of the truck and tried to hang her. She survived the hanging and we got the call and we adopted her and she had a white ring around her neck for the rest of her life where the rope was mm -hmm. and she was the sweetest. She was my best horse with the blind mm -hmm. because she knew the kids couldn't see and she was their eyes <laughs> That's and awesome. she was so grateful to be cut down from that tree because mm -hmm. this, this, is, this is how deviant humanity is that you would try to hang a small miniature horse from a tree because you didn't have the money anymore right all of our we had horses that were retired police horses mm -hmm. those were the best horses to work with the autistic mm -hmm. because they had already heard gunfire and they had already heard cars honking and so when the autistic kids would be on top of them and they would start screaming melting down throwing themselves off of the horse the horse would just stand there mm -hmm. so i loved getting police retired police horses we also would get um we got a donation from Budweiser here in Florida. They do the Clydesdales for Bush Gardens. Mm -hmm. We got a donation from one of their Clydesdales because his back was so messed up. Mm. Um, but Chucker was my favorite horse. He was my passion. And we had, the real quick, we had this one group that came every single Thursday. They were adults, older adults. Mm -hmm. And they were all... Back then, the term was mentally retarded. And there was this African-American male, it's about six feet tall, huge, over 200 pounds. And he loved Chucker. <laughs> and whenever he saw Chucker, he couldn't really talk, but he would be like, he would always say stuff, he'd go, that there my horse, Chucker. He couldn't really talk. Yeah. And he would be like, that there horse done come to me. And he would be so happy and he loved Chucker. And one day, you know, I'm the horse lady, we, we, his name was Max, the rider. And they were all senior citizens. Mm -hmm. They were living in a home for mentally retarded, which we don't use that term now, but just go with me. That's what we said then, older adults. And they all came on one day. They walked over from their house because mm -hmm. the group home was located right off of our property. And Max would come over and 
Max would get on top of Chucker, and he loved Chucker so much. And one day, Chucker threw him <laughs> because Chucker got scared. Something scared him, and he bucked up. And he and Max was, you know, they have physical complications too. And Max wasn't able to stay on top of this horse, and he, Chucker bucked and threw him on the ground. And Max stands up, and he brush. He literally brushes off the dust from his knees, and he brushes off his arms like in a movie. And he turns to me, and he's like, "That there, Chucker, done throw me off." <laughs> And I said to him, Max, do you want to get back on? Are you scared? And he said, no, I'm not scared. Max is my best friend. And we got him back on that horse right after he got thrown off. And Max rode Chucker all the way back to the barn. And Max knew somehow inside of him that Chucker didn't hate him. Mm -hmm. Chucker just got scared. And sometimes we get scared. And Mm -hmm. that's what I had to say to Max to get him back on the horse. And Max was like, it's okay, he just, he done be scared, he just done be scared. And when he got back to the the barn, we took the saddle off, and I look in the stall, and there's Max with the brush, and he's just brushing over Chucker's face, and Chucker's eyes are closed, and his head, when a horse gets real calm and they trust you, they they lower their head all the way down to, like, beneath your chest level. Mm -hmm. And Chucker's head is lowered, and I said, Max, you know, what are you doing? He goes... Chucker just done have a bad day. I'm just trying to get Chucker to relax. And Chucker was sound asleep standing in the stall with this giant, beautiful black man who had just been thrown. And, I mean, he had scraped elbows. He had, like, and back then you didn't assess for injuries. Like, this guy should have went to the hospital. But, we, you know, back then we didn't give a shit. Like, summer campers would get thrown off horses in the lake, and we just put them back on and... (laughs) You know, no, like, neck brace, no, like, checking for a concussion. You just put these kids back on, and they're like, was it fun? And they're like, yeah, it was awesome. I got thrown. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, that Max, I'll still see Max sometimes when I start to think about life throwing me off. Mm-hmm. I'll think about Max just that done that blunder Chucker done throw me <laughs> off and he just got right back on Chucker. He talked like an old cowboy, but he yeah. was a black man living in Claremont, Florida. But he had an accent, right? And he sounded just like an old cowboy. <laughs> he talked just like a 1950s cowboy, like that there done Chucker. <laughs> it was awesome, <laughs> but yeah, I hated leaving Wood. It killed me when I left Woodland. Mm-hmm. You beat me to one of my questions, by the way. Mm-hmm. That specifically, that story. But didn't you also have a horse that would run all the time? A horse and you had a specific code word for it? We had a code for Her name was Dakota. She was Appaloosa. <laughs> and I was, the, I was the horse lady. And the counselors would love picking who was going to ride Dakota. Because she would always take off. Mm-hmm. Now... Dakota was smarter than humans. Dakota was smarter than us. And she wouldn't do it all the time. (laughs) But if you got on top of her and she decided that you needed to be run away with to teach you some life lesson, Mm -hmm. she would just take off. And we had these CBs. And there was, you know, like there was, they would always, they'd be like break for Clyde. And I'd be like, this is Clyde, go ahead. And they're like, we got we got we don't know what Dakota's twenty is. She's gone. She's run off. And we would put young staff members that would show up, they'd want a job and they'd be like, Oh, I was raised around horses. My parents <laughs> my parents paid for horse lessons and they'd show up with nine hundred dollars worth of riding boots and riding pants and would be like, Yep, you got Dakota <laughs> And Dakota would be like, I see your rich upbringing. And I'm going to take off with you, and I'm going to run off into the sunset. 
And she would she would never go off the property, mm-hmm. but she would run off, and we would have to and, and and I would get the call. I would be somewhere else on the campground. They would be like, Clyde, Dakota ran off again. And after I I would mute the radio because I'd laugh every time. And I'd be like, okay, where is she? And they're like, well, if we think she stopped down at the other barn. I mean, she would take off from barn to barn. We're talking this was hundreds and hundreds of acres. She would just take off. Mm-hmm. And people would often ask me, as the horse lady, why do I not get rid of her? And I'm like, because she's not a threat. Mm-hmm. She's a threat to your ego, but she doesn't hurt you. She just takes off with you. Mm-hmm. And it's your fault that you don't have the ability to turn her around and to stop her. Because they would always just panic, let the reins go, and she would be like, she'd be gone. Mm-hmm. Full-on canter. <laughs> like, full-on race canter. Yeah. And then she would just abruptly stop. And if you weren't in the right position, you would go flying forward. And then she would just look at the rider on the ground, and she'd calmly let you mount her and ride her right back to the barn. <laughs> because she she never took off around dinner time. Uh-huh. She knew when right. it was dinner. Right. So she would take off, and then she would be like, all right, it's time to go back to the barn because it's dinner. <laughs> she knew the clock. Right. Just like Loki. Mm-hmm. And she would just have you. She would just calmly take you back to the barn. Mm-hmm. Just slow as anything. You'd see her walking in. I'd see the trail coming up, and there she is with her head down, tired, sweaty, because she had just taken off. She had run a marathon mm-hmm. with some young, arrogant rider. Mm-hmm. And then there were times we did put really sweet, non-arrogant riders on her, and I have regret for that because that <laughs> wasn't fair. But it was a rite of passage. Right. If you rode Dakota and you survived it. You should be on the team. Mm. So there were times that we put young people on her that we should know. <laughs> but I was only there as the horse lady for a couple years because then my mentor, he and his wife, the young pastor that was there, he and his wife had to take another call to a different church. And when he left, I felt I couldn't stay there because there was a senior staff member when I was there as a kid that had sexually assaulted me Mm. and he was coming back to power. Mm. And so I, when my mentor was leaving, I knew I wouldn't be shielded from this guy and I couldn't believe that he was still part of the church. So I started applying to colleges to become a youth pastor because I was clearly told Mm. I will never be a pastor, but the second best for you as a woman is to be a youth pastor. Mm -hmm. So I applied and... So what was your... I guess, what was your, your selection criteria for colleges? Well, for I wanted to go to Atlanta because that was where my horse lady was living. Mm. When she left me as a kid, she moved back to where her family was in Georgia. And I chose Atlanta Christian College based mm. off of where Erica and her husband Norman and the baby that I had nannied Sarah were living. But also, at some point, as a young, fat teenager... I had become a fan of baseball, mm-hmm. and uh, a guy that I had had a crush on was an Atlanta Braves fan, mm. and I had gotten into the Atlanta Braves, and I was actually following it and learning the game, and I thought, Atlanta Christian College, it's no longer there. Mm. But I applied, I got accepted, they wanted my money, they acted like it was Harvard, but mm-hmm. they needed the money, Right. and I took out loans, and off to Atlanta Christian College I go. Leaving everything in Claremont I had ever known. Mm-hmm. So moving into a sort of male-dominated field. Very much so. Right? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. What what was that like as a woman trying to to break through that barrier? I didn't have to. I knew my place. Mm. There was no breaking through a barrier at Atlanta Christian College. I had accepted that because I had ovaries, I wasn't good enough to be a pastor because God had said women need to submit to the authority of men. Mm-hmm. And my mentor had made it very clear to me, and because I loved him, and all I did was replace, this mentor just replaced Nick, mm-hmm. my father. Mm-hmm. So when I meet this mentor at Woodlands, and he becomes my all in all, and I worship him and his wife, and and they go on to have children at Woodlands, and I become the godmother of their, you know, two of their children, and all I ever wanted to be was them. They were young, they were attractive, they were in shape. So, you know, we missed a big part. When mom died, I joined Jenny Craig mm. and spent $3,000 and lost 100 pounds of Jenny, you know, on Jenny Craig at Woodlands. So when I left Woodlands, I was actually no longer considered morbidly obese. Mm-hmm. I had lost all the weight on Jenny Craig. Mm-hmm. And I remember backing up going to Jenny Craig. They're like, what, what brought you in? I said, well, my mom died three days ago. Mm. I went to Jenny Craig three days after mom died and signed up. And if, for those of you that don't know what Jenny Craig is, it's a meal regimented plan, mm-hmm. and you have to see a counselor, and you can only buy their food. I lost 100 pounds on that. Tell me some of the pranks you would play with your counselor. Yeah, so I, so the counselors at Jenny Craig, <laughs> backing up, we're going backwards. That's okay. They this were, is fluid. They were young, young like cheerleader, because back then marketing, you know, they didn't have fat counselors. Now you can work at Jenny Craig and you can struggle with your weight. Mm -hmm. But back then you needed to fit a certain profile. It was acting. And I had a a counselor that was a cheerleader from UCF, University of Central Florida. And I was losing weight every week. So she got to ring the bell every week. (laughs) And then you get points when your staff, when your clients do really well. Right. And she got real cocky. And was like, she got real cocky because every time I got in the scale, two, five pounds. Because understand this, I'm doing Jenny Craig at Woodlands. I'm Mm -hmm. living on a campground Mm -hmm. that's hundreds of acres. The minute the sun went down, I would run by memory on the trails that we rode the horses on. Right. It was completely black. No light but the stars Mm -hmm. and the moon. Mm -hmm. But I ran at night so that no one would see the fat girl running. Mm -hmm. And I ran seven, every night of the week, seven nights a week, if you will, if that's seven. Does it work out to seven? Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Seven nights a week. No time off. I ran Christmas Eve night. I ran Christmas Day night. Mm -hmm. I ran Sunday night. And I was losing weight, two to five pounds a week Mm -hmm. on Jenny Craig. And the one week I went in, I lost like four pounds. And because she had gotten so cocky, she made the comment to me, I thought we were going to be at five again, which was unhealthy to lose five pounds a week. But I was running every night in the Mm -hmm. dark. Mm -hmm. Because understand, my mentors at this time are both models. It's a man and woman, pastor and his wife. They're they're literally the most beautiful people on the campground, especially Mm -hmm. the wife. She was Mm -hmm. like a model. Um, And I go in the next week and I was so pissed off at her that she was so arrogant because I I was not supposed to be losing more than 1.5 pounds a week. So the buckles that we use on the end of the lead ropes that you attach to the horse's head, I took the buckles off and put them in my pockets and I stepped on the scale and I gained 11 pounds. (laughs) And she started crying and she was like this, she was like this LA, she's like, oh my God, Clydette, what is going on? Like, you always lose two pounds. I'm like two seconds away from a promotion. 
And I'm like, I don't know what happened. And in my pockets, <laughs> not only did I have these buckles from the lead rope, but I had bought a box of Twinkies. <laughs> and I unwrapped every Twinkie and threw the Twinkies in the trash. Uh-huh. And I pulled out of my pocket around the buckles all these empty wrappers covered in frosting and I dropped them on the ground and I said to her I go I just had a moment I don't know what happened she goes did you eat the whole box and I'm like I ate like three boxes this week and she starts crying like so I felt so bad so I took the buckles out of my pocket I laid them on her desk and I said let me weigh again and I lost 2.9 pounds and she goes that is friggin disgustingly cruel and I'm like, well, you got cocky. So <laughs> I'm paying you, lady. Right. I was like 20. I think I was 22 when I pulled that prank. Mm-hmm. But fast forward, I leave and I get accepted and I say goodbye to Woodlands. And I thought I was going to die from the pain of saying goodbye to Woodlands. And I mm-hmm. get to Atlanta Christian College and there I am with all 18-year-old, young, aspiring, charismatic Christians. And I try to fit in and I'm semi-overweight, not really, but older than all of them mm-hmm. and I did me I started being funny and sang and performed in you know little little uh, events that the school would have where you could sing and I'd bring my little demo tapes mm-hmm. and I would sing and I befriended a guy and uh, he became my very best friend his name is Nathan he became my very best friend and he was in the army Mm. He was a chaplain's assistant, and I I fell madly in love with him. He was much shorter than me, which was kind of funny, too. Madly in love with him. He he was probably... My first love was when I was a teenager, was a musician. I mentioned I'm I'm still friends with him, which you're an awesome husband, you know, to let me still have an awesome friendship with my first love. But, you know, it was first love. I was was a young teenager, and... He was a musician that mom and dad ironically allowed to let their metal band play in our garage when all metal was satanic, but they were in love with him, so they let him. But anyway, Mm -hmm. fast forward. This was my first real love where Mm -hmm. I actually thought I was going to marry this guy, but I knew my weight was going to... I knew he loved me for my humor, and he thought it was hilarious, and we were the best of friends, and we hung out all the time. But I knew that my weight, he was never going to be in love with me. Mm. He was never going to be attracted to me. So college was hard because I knew I should be a pastor. Mm -hmm. I knew I could out-preach any of the guys in any of my classes. Mm -hmm. I was allowed to take some classes there because they were under the youth ministry. um, They were within the youth ministry program. Mm -hmm. But they were also not, did not allow women to take pastoral studies. Mm-hmm. So I took classes there, but I still wanting to be a pastor, desiring to be a pastor, feeling called to be a pastor, but I could only get the degree in youth ministry. So I spent quite a few years there and at, in Atlanta is where I joined the United States Army. Well, first, it's like you're just lobbing up like the best pitches ever for me to segue into the next thing. But before we go into the reserves, is it true that you put Atlanta Bible College up for sale. Yes. So I got, I don't know what pissed me off. It was, <laughs> it was something about my gender 
was mentioned in one of the classes and the professor backed the student that was making a comment about us women Mm -hmm. not being, we shouldn't have been in this class Mm. because it was a class just that was supposed to be for men. And the, the, the professor backed it and I was good. I was like, the dean really liked me mm. because he liked my comedy. He mm. thought it was really funny. And well, that's he, also when you were doing stand up. I was right? doing stand up in clubs in Atlanta at night to try to make money because the only way I was eating was living off of my roommate who had a, a very rich family. She would, she was helping me eat because I had no money to buy food. I was an all-loan student. Mm -hmm. I had no parental support. When I left for Atlanta Bible College, my father handed me a $20 bill and said, good luck with that. Mm -hmm. Um, The same father That told me I was called to ministry. Right. Yep. Okay. Did not want to help me. Just wanted to point out that irony. And he didn't have the money to support me, don't get me wrong, but he didn't do shit to try to help me get the financial aid. I had to go to friends to teach me how to to write the financial aid paperwork. Mm. But um, I got so mad that the professor backed this, and then I went to the dean who, you know, said basically I was like the daughter he always wanted, and he backed the professor, and oh. I got mad. So I went to a local hardware store, <laughs> and I bought a bunch of signs, and I put the college up for sale, and they got calls making offers uh-huh. on the college <laughs> and because I did this the, the some of the staff signed a peti- pe- petition to try to get me to leave but then it was overridden by everyone saying how hilarious it was and right that I was yeah but yeah I did put it up for sale and we got a couple offers because I linked it to my hotmail mm. so <laughs> I was getting the offers and responding to the offers in real what was time. the best offer Oh, millions. Mm-hmm. Millions of dollars for the campus. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, so we're going to pause real quick before yes, we move on. Yes, we need a break because I'm, I'm, like, I'm feeling emotional as we get into joining the Army. Okay, so the, the next segment, we are going to talk about you joining the Army. Okay. okay. Wow, I'm emotional about that, so yeah. Okay, it's going to be great. Mm-hmm. All right. Go Army. <laughs> cool.